Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us. And we're grateful to our partners who help make this podcast a reality. With that... This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Ford's Gin. All right, everyone, if you're like me, you enjoy a good gin and tonic or a Negroni, or maybe you're mixing up that crazy delicious cocktail from last week's Beyond the Drink episode. Regardless, seeing multiple gin bottles at a bar, restaurant, or liquor store may be a little daunting. And this is why I truly love Ford's Gin. It was crafted by bartenders, for bartenders, and at-home bartenders alike to make a really, really good gin cocktail. Simon Ford noticed bartenders had various go-to gins for different classic gin cocktails and thought, why not make a gin that bartenders could use that would work perfectly in all these drinks while keeping it at an accessible price? Thank you, Mr. Simon Ford. Ford's gin is a mix of nine botanicals. It starts with your traditional base of juniper and coriander seed and then balanced with some citrus and florals and spices and not to geek out here anymore, but It's then steeped for 15 hours before distillation, which helps deliver on that cocktail gin promise, making it great for classics as well as innovative gin cocktails. But here's what I also love about Ford's Gin, everybody. A lot of the ways they give back are through the bartending community. At the beginning of the pandemic, with restaurants and bars closed around the country, Ford's Gin knew they had to find a way to continue to support bartenders. And one way they helped was by activating hundreds of bartenders coast to coast, supporting them through cocktail creation. So if you go to Instagram and search the hashtag lost shift bartender, you'll find a bunch of recipes to make at home. Cheers to Ford's for continuing to spread awareness and support the bartending community. To learn more about Ford's Gin, go to Ford'sGin.com and follow them on social media at Ford's Gin. Please drink responsibly. Ford's London Dry Gin, 45% ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Ford's Gin is a registered trademark. Ford's Gin, we thank you. This episode is also made possible with the help of our friends at Real Good Fish. I actually subscribed to this company before the podcast season. So I've received multiple boxes of seafood from them. And when the box arrives, I love getting it because I open it and get this big whiff of this ocean smell. And it's a good day. Real Good Fish offers the freshest seafood direct from fishermen who value sustainability and it's delivered with full transparency. I'll touch more upon that in a second. They've directly supported over 89 local fishermen. And good for you all, you can now enjoy seamless home delivery across all U.S. states. So more about their transparent sourcing information. When you receive it, you know who caught your fish, how it was caught, where it was caught, and on which vessel, literally. I actually just cooked some rockfish from them the other night, and the name of the fisherman was Jeff Betancourt. His fishing vessel was called Miss Mariah. He caught it out of Half Moon Bay Harbor. It also had the gear he used and the date it was caught. But here's what I also love about Real Good Fish. They believe in giving back to their community. Through a program called Bay to Tray, they work with California school districts and institutions, and they've created a revolutionary solution that unifies their coastal communities. They do this by providing children more nutritious meals and empowering them to be the next generation of environmental stewards. To learn more about Real Good Fish and sustainable seafood, as well as their memberships, community pickup sites, and nationwide home delivery, go to realgoodfish.com and follow them on social media at Real Good Fish. Real Good Fish, we thank you. 
Hey everyone, one more thing before we get going. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch, which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, and hoodies. Again, that's beyondtheplatemerch.com. All right, enjoy this week's episode. So we usually ask people to rattle off 10 things to do an audio test. So why don't I start rattle off 10 essential cooking techniques for us? Rinse, dry, heat, season, sear, turn, temp, rest, slice. I got it. I was not expecting those, but I love it. It's going to be a good hour. Cappy. It is. It is. Let's let, let's do it. Today's guest is an Armenian American chef, restaurateur, author, philanthropist, and TV personality. You also know him as a judge on Food Network's Chopped, as an Iron Chef, and he's your Saturday morning entertainment on the kitchen. His work career spans over 30 years, having cooked in some of the greatest restaurants in the world, including New York and France, with many stops in between. He currently has restaurants in Florida and New York. He's written multiple cookbooks that have received rave reviews, and he's the host of a fresh new podcast called Four Courses with Jeffrey Zakarian. Oh, yeah. Also, together with his wife, Margaret, he launched a line of kitchen products, which apply professional kitchen expertise for home kitchens. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with a man who clearly doesn't sit still. <laughs> the first New York chef to earn three straight three-star reviews, Chef Jeffrey Zakarian. Hi, Andy. Hi there, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. good where good, are you? Good. Where are you broadcasting from? I'm in Chicago. Chicago, Jeff Morrow. Yeah, exactly. My buddy. Right I was just talking to him this morning. Where are you? Yeah, he's he's. I'm you know I've adopted him as my my son. I would love to be in and a room. He with tells you me that I give him advice even when I don't want it. <laughs> and I said, that's the fucking advice you should be taking <laughs> when you don't want it. Exactly. He goes, I, I mean, know, I know, I know. You're right. I'm like, okay, just remember yeah. that. Yeah, that's that's right. I, I mean, I'm exhausted sharing your career <laughs> with our listeners. How you, are you, you feeling? You left out. Two very big, important things. I'm sure I did. Okay. We, my wife and I have a production company, and we are uh, we produced two telethons, one, both for City Harvest this year during the, during the pandemic that raised uh, over $2 million for Amazing. City Harvest. I'm the, chairman, I'm the chairman of the Food Council, and I'm on the board of City Harvest. And then also, we, so we have a production company, and we're producing a really cool um, documentary about the restaurant world, what happened to it in New York sort of a love letter to those restaurants. Uh, and we are going to, we've wrapped production of it and it's going to be shown at the Tribeca Film Festival. Awesome. Uh, this June. So we're very proud to be partnering with Rosenthal and uh, Tribeca P Productions, Jane Rosenthal, Robert, Robert De Niro, Katie Kirk is also a, a producer. That's amazing. So yeah, we, we did that. And we didn't have enough time to fill, so we just yeah, decided yeah, to like, yeah. run, like, run up three documentaries up yeah. the flagpole, see what happens. And then we're uh, shooting a new show that we're producing as well with food, for Food Network in Tampa, Florida this August. Wow. Uh, yet to be named. All right. I love that. I think that. that's it. <laughs> How are you feeling? I feel great. I mean, I, I, I've been very active during this whole crazy... Uh, I mean, it's almost like a... I mean, really, February... It, 2020 was one month. It was January, February, maybe. It's like two months. And I feel robbed of 10 months. It's so crazy. So I asked your daughters to say something about their dad. You did? I did. How did you talk to them? Well, here's what they said. They said, over the years, we've developed quite an elevated palate. 
So just in case you were concerned, we wanted to let you know you've made the cut. Thanks for being the very best dad and live-in chef that we could have asked for. <laughs> the key to that is live-in chef. How convenient. <laughs> yeah. With all your accomplishments, I know your children are an incredible source of pride. Can you yes. tell me about them? Uh, they're great kids. They, you know, they just, uh, Tim, I was watching this morning, they co-hosted a NBC Today show, local from Tampa. And uh, they, I mean, I wasn't there. They, they went and they just did it. They read teleprompters there. They're just very, so, you know, I, you know, we, I don't know how old you are, Andy, but um, for me, we didn't have those social skills at all. When I started TV like 15 years ago, I mean, the first times I went in, I was not good at it. I was nervous. You know, I was worried about the camera. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. They had none of that <laughs> because between TikTok and Snapchat and social screaming videos and all that, they're like, oh, yeah, wh what do we do? Where's the camera? Uh, yeah. Can I have some makeup? And they're ready to go. And they just, they're so good. They're so social, which is what I'm very proud of them because, you know, in this world we live in, you need to, you need to have that element of, of humanity, that, that real connection. And, and they have it. And I'm, I'm blessed that they have it. Their mother really has spent a lot of time with them. And they have it anyways, but she gives them a lot more of it. So um, just great having them around. And, you know, we don't, I mean, if they want to be on TV again another time or zero, it's up to me. I don't care. So it's, it's really something I, I believe that they're really, they actually genuinely enjoy because I'm not pushing them in any way, shape or form to do that. Yeah, that's cool. So how about like little Jeffrey Zakarian? How would you describe yourself at like a, at their age? Well, I have one, George, he's here, he's seven. Um, <laughs> handsome, handsome, handsome fella. devil he is. Um, he is, uh, I was very, uh, I was, I was youngest, obviously of, of, of my family. And I was, uh, born in a house in Worcester, Mass. Um, a, a house that was dedicated to feeding people. Um, if anything was there was Armenian, the Armenian sensibility is like the Italian sensibility. I would say that probably the Middle Eastern Israeli sensibility or the perhaps, I don't know what other sensibility, but I think it's the Italian sensibility. And you, we had grandmother, grandfather, uncles, aunts, mostly aunts, and everything was made fresh. So breakfast was like a feast. We didn't have any money, but we made stuff out of nothing. Grains and eggs and lamb and leftovers. And, and then lunch was, lunch was a feast. And then dinner was a feast. And then each meal period, you talked about the upcoming meal period and what was going to be eaten. So <laughs> that's how I, I grew it. up. And I love I'm, it. I'm doing the same thing now. So it's, we're, we're always hungry and always eating and always, there's always something going. There was, I didn't, no, the oven never shut off ever. So I'm always perplexed by that. You know, it never, I don't know how they did it. And there was no air conditioning. There was no, you know, they, they always stay at home moms. There was no help. They just, they just did it and they shopped and they went and got, you know, all this stuff and they brought it home and my dad worked and we just, we feasted all the time on really good stuff. So I didn't have the ability. I didn't go out. I didn't eat fast food. I didn't eat none of that. We really frowned upon that. Um, so um, and my kids to this day don't really like fast food at all. They don't really have it. They don't have a desire for it. Um, you know, if did we you want, help out in the kitchen? Oh yeah, I did. As a young kid, I did all the time. I, I baked a lot with my, my mom. Um, so when the kids were outside playing hockey, I would pay hockey for a little bit. Then I would come in cause it was too cold and I'm like, I want to bake. Mm. And, siblings, uh, siblings. I, I have an older all? sister and an older, oh, the older brother. I am the youngest. So I got, I got to break all the rules. I still break the rules. 
I don't have a rule book. Are they into food at all? They were into food. They were into eating. But my, my sister is a school teacher and my brother, an investment banker. So they didn't get the food bug like I got it. I didn't really plan on being a chef. I didn't go to school to be a chef. I didn't I went to school to be an economics major and a, get an MBA. And then when I, that didn't turn out really well, I went to France for a year, just like a gap year. And I fell in love with, guess what? Food and lunch and dinner and two hours of this and two hours of that in France when it was in the eighties, early eighties, when I was there, 81, I was 20 something. And, and like that, their whole culture is 3000 years old and their food culture is 2,700 years older than ours. And so it's really matured and sophisticated and, and it, everything about their life is about enjoying life. What did mom and dad do? My mom is a housekeeper, a home, a homeowner, housekeeper. She painted the house. She went up on the ladder. She, cooked the dinner, she sewed, and she basically did everything, which is the hardest job in the world, quite frankly, as I know, having three kids. My dad was a musician. He played the trombone, the violin. Uh, what else did he play? The clarinet. And he, uh, he was a professional music, he taught music. as a music teacher, music professor. And then at night, he had his own band. The, and his, he had the George Adrian Orchestra. Uh, and, you know, he was... a big band, big band leader. And uh, he was really quite good. And that's, there was music in my house every day, breakfast, lunch, dinner. There was students coming in and out, taking lessons. We were at a tiny house, but there was always someone in there. There was always someone practicing. It was never quiet. Hmm. Were never. you guys eating? Uh, we were eating uh, and music. Were you eating, eating Monty and, music. and making Lama June? Yes, like we were that? making Lama June. We are making all that <laughs> stuff. You know, it's like, it's, you know, it's the Middle Eastern basket is the same for you, for me, for like, oh, it's gosh. the same, right? One of my best friends who's a producer of this podcast is Armenian. So I've gotten to taste it from the hands of his family. It's, it's I mean, amazing. The food is so good and rich and, and it's so good for you. And it's so simple at the same time. It's kind of like... I have all the recipes. They're like completely anecdotal. There's no like, like measurements, a little cumin, a little yogurt, a little of this, a little of that. But when you put it together, it's, I mean, I can do it. I understand bittersweet, sour. I know how to, you know, effectuate all that stuff. Uh, Cause I've learned, uh, but pity the poor person who just gets recipes handed down with no, like, you know, a little of this, a little of that. It's, it's kind of what they do. But I mean, we ate and we ate so well that I was a snob at four. Like if I would eat at some friend's house, I'm like, oh, this is Swanson TV dinner. This is, what is this? This is revolting. Right. Did you work as a kid or do you remember your first job? Yes, yeah. my first job. Let me say my first. I used to shovel snow because I, I, I lived in Worcester, Mass. You know, we got probably lots of snowstorms. I mean, it's cold and it's, when it's cold, it's cold and it's a lot of snow. So I shoveled a lot. I went from house to house. Uh, and then I, I, I didn't do the summer stuff. Like I didn't mow grass or any of that. I was too lazy. But I ended up working at a, a fast food joint, strangely enough. Um, it was a, a, a place called Lums, L-U-M-S. I don't know if they exist anymore. It's sort of like a, a fancy Burger King, you know, it was a sit-down restaurant, but everything was in the deep fryer or on, on, a, on a griddle. I mean, nothing was, there wasn't a fresh piece of fish, <laughs> meat anywhere, it was all frozen. Uh, but that's what I did. And I ended up starting dishwashing and then, you know, I was pretty competent and pretty like aggressive and... I worked my way up to manager in no time at all. And, and I was managing that restaurant, I think, 
mm-hmm. was 17, 18 years old. Um, so uh, I still, it wasn't what I wanted to do because the food was just dreadful. Uh, but I did like making money. Yeah. So was that it was just great. a job? You'd, but you liked food just at a home, job. but it didn't, it was a different kind of. It was of, a job. It yeah. was a job I could do. It was easy. It was mindless. And um, uh, it paid well. And I, then I graduated to bartender at the El Morocco, which is a very famous restaurant back then in Worcester. Uh, four or five Lebanese women, uh, one larger than the next. Nothing wrong with that. But they were all in the kitchen cooking all the time. Reminded me of my home. And the food was just amazing. I became a bartender way well before I was able to serve drinks. I got a fake ID and I really made money there because it was cash tip and I was charming and I like put on all the, the big smile. And um, I remember that like so like it was yesterday and uh, it was a great time. It didn't last long enough, but um, you know, I had to go to college and I had to work. And so it didn't really, it didn't, it didn't materialize. I ended up going to UMass uh, in Amherst. So I had to leave that job, but I love bartending. And that was really the first time I worked in a real, real restaurant was as a bartender. Interesting. And so you go to UMass, you get a degree in economics, you take a gap year in France, fall in love with food. Did you start working in France and food at all, or you were just absorbing it all? Well, I did two years at UMass and two years at Worcester State College, ended up graduating from Worcester State College with a degree in economics and a minor in urban studies, just to clarify that which is the study of cities and the growth and all that stuff. So I went to Europe. I, I didn't work then. I just traveled um, and I ate in restaurants and I, w- I was on a, a grant. I had very little money and I had a little pass. Back then, I, was, I think it was called an SNC pass. It was a railroad road pass and you got a pass. You could ride coach anywhere in France. I think it was $69. It was unlimited. And the, the past was like there was one coach car in the back and you were on that. But I, it was like liberating because you could go all over Europe. The rail system was, you know, it's a small town. And, you know, Europe, is, Europe can fit into Texas, you know. So the train system was connected. I went all over the place. I loved it. And I, I absolutely fell in love with pastry because the town I landed in uh, was in the south of France called Monton, which was I didn't know then. It was like the Boca Raton of France where everyone went to retire. But what they had was a surfeit of pastry shops because retired people like to eat pastries. And I was blown away by the precision, the unity, the organization, the smell. Every single street had a dozen pastry shops or bread and every bread was bought like per meal period. So if you didn't get in line at seven in the morning, you wouldn't get any bread. Then you go back for lunch, you get another thing of bread. Then you go back later on and it was that you're out, you know? So I really love that. I, I felt like I was really living how I was living at home. You know, it was sort of like fresh, everything fresh. And that sort of like shook me up a bit. I was like, wow, this is just like I grew up. And it was like, but this is like the real deal. I'm in France and there's water and it's beautiful and it's old and it's um, sophisticated. And so I ended up just hanging around there for almost, I don't know, six months or so maybe a little longer. You know, if you know where Monton is very close to Nice, so I made my way at Monton, Nice, Ventimiglia, Monaco, and I gambled. I went to Monaco and gambled. I'm a big James Bond fan. Um, and that was like back in the day where the first, you know, I was a Sean Connery fan. So I went to see Monte Carlo and the, where 
the casino was, and I, I loved all that stuff. I, I, I never gambled in my life. I had a very limited budget, and I went into the, into the I had one suit I had bought at Alan Bilzerian, which is a men's, private men's uh, salon that I used to buy, like, handmade clothes because I made this money bartending, so I'd, like, buy good suits. So I bought a, a suit. I brought one suit, and every week I would go to dinner at one place, and I would dry clean it or clean it and save it for the next place. So once a week I went to a fancy place and the rest of the week I ate real cheap, like couscous royale was 12, 12 francs for like, like a plate and you just stuff up on that one day. So I went to, I put my suit on, went to the casino thinking I was like all, you know, hot shit. And uh, I won a lot of money. I searched out a game that was easy. I didn't understand gambling at all. So I played roulette because it's easy. You throw a ball down, you put money down. I watched a bit. There were Americans there, so I could understand what they were talking about. And I put some money down and actually won, for me, it was a shit ton of money. It was almost $10,000. And I didn't understand it at the time. Like I, 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 I left and I was kind of in shock at what happened. So I had this money. I had fallen in love with a thing called the Michelin Guide, which is this book that I would get to get pastry. I was looking at pastry and I went in the bookstore and I'm like, I asked the person in broken English, I broken French. I want a you know, guide to shops and restaurants. He said, Michelin, Michelin. And he gave me the book. It was very thick back. It was a big, thick book, red. The guy in the thing was a blimp. And I was in Nice in Monton in Monaco. And so I had this money. I had all this money. And I decided to go and eat instead of once a week or twice a week, I could go eat as many times as I want. And I'm going to blow all this money. And I did. And so I went from the south of France, drew a map around Bordeaux, Marseille, Lyon, uh, Chablis, Champagne, Paris, and back. And the whole thing, and I ended up in Paris. And I did the whole loop on the train. And I would eat at all these great restaurants. I would have lunch, because it was less expensive. And I would write everything down. And so I ate at two, three star restaurants all the time. And I think I got 17 of them in. And I still had a lot of money left over. Because it was one person, you know, and I could only drink so much. And I go, it's like, okay. <laughs> and the, the franc back then, I think it was 10 to 1. And that was when it was a franc. And um, Mitterrand had just been elected. So the, the, the franc like devalued. It was a, a socialist. So bad for me, good for, bad for France, good for me. Because the dollar just was so strong. So like a bottle of Dom Perignon was like $48. It was amazing. Um, and I got all this information about restaurants. And... Absolutely, that's the reason why I'm in this business is because it was just the sheer impact of dining in a three-star restaurant alone and having all the service. And it was like a, the most beautifully cadenced ballet you've ever seen. And I was in my early 20s. And I'm like, this is what I want to do. Without a hands down, this is what I want to do. I love the front. I love the, I loved everything about it. Not just the food. I was not just, I wasn't enamored with the food, but I knew I had to get to it through the food. I mean, that was the way to start. I had to start in the back. You know, you don't go to school and like, I want to be a maitre d' in France. It just doesn't happen. And then you, and so you came back. Is that when you decided to go to CIA or yep. did you start working? Came you, back. Okay. I uh, blew the entire rest of the money coming back on the Concorde. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it was. Uh, not a nice plane, by the way. Loud, really fucking loud, fast. And at the time, I think it was, I'm going to say it was $6,000 or 5000 It was a lot of money. 
I didn't really tell my parents much of that story and they're not around anymore. So please don't, please don't. Yeah. So I came back and I told my parents I was not going to go get an MBA and that I was going to be a chef just like that. And uh, my mom said to me, she was not happy. And I wrote this in one of my books. She said, quote, be a chef. Were you going to grow up and marry a waitress? And so that was the, you know, the, the vision that she had of the world. <laughs> it's, I mean, you can't blame her. This was 1981. And um, I get it. You know, at that, that time, she was close to 80 years old, 75. But it was, it was I, I went to CIA. I went to two weeks and I went up there and I brought my book that I wrote. Was it in Hyde my, Park at the time? Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's still there. It's 10 times what I was, what size I, I, when I- I graduated from there in 2002. Okay, so it's 10 times what it was in 2002 also, right? Yeah. It's un yeah, unrecognizable. I was just, just yeah. going to say, yeah. Uh, and I actually had Tim Ryan as a, a chef, and now he's the president. So funny, right? I was there at the time when it uh, went from Mets to Tim Ryan. Yes, that, that was I was the there middle, when it was Mets. That was when the Mets middle. got thrown out for some scandal. We yeah, won't talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> that was in the But I love Ferdy. He was great. Yeah. That yeah. dude was like, I mean, I'm sorry. Germans run things really well. He was like the rock star. I mean, walking through the hallway, you, if you see him like a hundred feet down the hallway, you were like, stand up straight, prim, proper. Right. What, you know what I mean? He's like, the guy that got that. all, he got Hobart and all these people that donate millions and millions of dollars. He made that school what it was. Yeah. Tim yeah. made it even better. Yeah. So they both did a great job. But um, I went there and they said it was a two-year wait list. And I said, no, I can't. I got to speak to someone about that. And they're like, uh, and I was, a, I already had a degree. So I was coming there out of, you know, college. I had a BS already. And they only offered an associate. So I was sort of like already, you know, full of piss and vinegar. I'm like, I can't wait two years. So, well, sir, you have to wait because we don't have anything. I said, can I speak to the the dean of admissions and all that. So I got into the dean of admissions and I showed him my my uh, diary. I said, look, I, just, I, don't, I don't wanna brag, but uh, you need me here. I've eaten at 18 of the 21 three-star restaurants in France, your entire faculty, no one's done that. And I can share all that with your students and with your faculty because it's really remarkable what I've done. I don't know if there's anyone here on campus that ever has ever done that. And they were like sort of taken aback. <laughs> Rightfully so, and I was, you know, I could have said it in a better way, but I, I wanted to get in. I was very much like, this is going, you know, this is, I'm going to get in. And so they talked and they read it and they go, oh, nah, 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 whatever. And they said, well, you know what? We really don't have anything, but if we have something, we'll let you know. And I said, okay. I went back to Worcester and I think, oh, I don't know, three or four days later, I'm not sure how long it was. It wasn't a large period of time. They said, we have an opening in two weeks. So I borrowed the money. I don't know where I got it from, some from my dad, some from some friends. And uh, I was there. And 18 months later, I was working in Manhattan. Amazing. Almost to the day I graduated. Le Cirque, was Le Cirque right out of there? Well, it was one of the first ones. Le Cirque was this, uh, was this I call it the second first because I ended up at a place called Quo Vadis. I got hooked up by a friend who introduced me to Terrence Brennan, who was working at um, Le Cirque. And his buddy was working at Quo Vadis. Uh, and I think it was the pastry chef. I think it was Dieter Schoner who was working at Quo Vadis. Yeah. I was just going to ask you if you knew him. Yeah, very well. I'll tell you how this happened. Oh, God. He was my pastry instructor at CIA. Yeah. So I he, think that... That man, I... Yep. Yeah. No, he just passed, by the way, two yeah, years I know, ago. Yeah. I know. So hard. he... 
played a big part in my life. I, I went to Quo Vadis, which is a very fancy restaurant on 63rd Street. It's now, it used to be the Club Macanudo, if you know where that is on 63rd and Madison. It was a very vibrant Italian-style French restaurant. It was a gorgeous dining room. Killer chef downstairs. There's a lot of people. I, my, my name escapes me. I worked with a lot of guys that worked there. And they all started leaving. Uh, Dita Sean, you know, everybody left. And they ended up working at uh, Le Cirque. So as soon as I could get out of there, I went to Le Cirque. It wasn't too long ago after that I went there. And I asked, I, I interviewed for a job. Alan Sayek was the chef. And he spoke very bad English. And to this day, I love him. He's, he's still with us. He still speaks the same bad English. <laughs> <laughs> he, never, he never learned anything else other than what he knows. Uh, he's a very good sense of humor. And I interviewed with him and he, I said, I'm, I'm working at Covadas and, you know, I want to work here. And, you know, I said, well, I don't have anything. I said, I have nothing, you know, I don't have a, a job. I don't have any position. Huh? And I said, I'll work for nothing. I want to work here. He goes, what? I work for nothing. I just want to work here. And I, when you have something, uh, you can pay me or not. I just want to learn. I want to work here. He goes, okay, come tomorrow. <laughs> that was it. So I went tomorrow. I went there. I started hanging around and I was like just doing odd jobs, nothing. It's the worst, pulling crayfish, whatever. The worst job that was possible to do, I was doing it, okay? Which is what you do. But I was so happy because I was like peeling crayfish and potatoes in the back and I'm watching everybody to my right, to my left. I had a butcher over here watching. I'm watching this guy cut sweetbreads. I'm watching this guy accept soft shell crabs. I'm watching this guy get white truffles. And in my mind, I'm going, I've arrived. I'm back mm. in France. This mm. is what I saw. Mm, and I, I remember it. like this was the restaurant to be in. And uh, you know, David Boulay was on the line. Terrence Brennan was on the line. I wasn't on the line yet. And a couple of days into this routine or two weeks, not even two weeks, a very short amount of time, uh, the assistant pastry chef, Didi Schorner was working there. So Didi Schorner had come over and he did the Four Seasons cake and creme brulee and all this stuff. So he was like the God, right? Uh, very quiet German man, but intense, right? Intense, like crazy. And I didn't know, I didn't know him very much. I knew him a little bit from Quavadas, but I didn't know him that much. And the pastry chef assistant who made all the souffles was making candied um, fruit. And when you make candied fruit, you, you cook sugar to 236 degree brie. Then you put it on a toothpick like a clementine or an orange and you dip it in the, in the sugar and you let it set and it hardens. And it's one of these beautiful, it was for the mignardiste, the petit four plate at the end. It was all these little lemons and baby kumquats and baby grapes, all with candied sugar. Very old fashioned, but that's, we give this beautiful cookies and things to people. And that was the, the end course. It came free of charge after you paid, you know, through the, through the teeth for the dinner. Something happened. He was doing this. He, he knocked it over on his hand. So if you've ever had something spilled on your hand, so water's 212 degrees. It'll scald you and give you a second degree burn. This was sugar at 260 degrees. So he had serious burns. He'd rushed to the hospital. And the chef said to me, uh, okay, now you're in pastry. Go in pastry. I still wasn't getting paid. And that night we did like 130 souffles. That's how he learned how to make a souffle. It was like, okay, this is how you make a souffle. The Dita Shona was freaking out. He didn't have his second guy. So I just basically put my hand through a wall and just like, show me, show me, show me, show me, show me, show me. And I just, I grunted it out. 
The first day was a disaster. The second day was better. The third day was better. By the fifth day, I had it. And Dieter started to like smile at me. And I would joke a little bit. And he was <laughs> a little smile would come to his face. <laughs> but I stayed there for the longest time, almost six months. And like, that's where I got all my pastry skills. So I, my first real job was and he's assistant like one of the to best. him out of the ac a complete accident. So I, when I saw Fernando like years later, I'm like, thanks for burning yourself, bro. You yeah. really helped me out. <laughs> did, did, did Dieter Schoner ever tell you the story when he was in, I think it was at the Savoy and there, it was something about a souffle, the, whatever station the, the souffle was on. And he, he had told the owners of the hotel, the, the pastry chef's pump broke one of the soufflés. There was a funny story where a souffle didn't rise correctly. And the pump broke. And someone said, oh what happened? God. He said, oh, their pump broke. <laughs> That's hysterical. <laughs> Let me tell you, that man was like, the knowledge he had and what he, he's very unusual because he was a really great guy as well. Because once you got in with him, once you prove that you, you got his back, he had your back. He would like, let me show you. I'm going to show you. Take these recipes. These are for you. I mean, he was like, he gave me everything. I mean, the guy he was could like, take the most simple cookie ever and explain to you why an ingredient in the cookie does what it does. The and guy it's the most fascinating been thing. doing it for 50 years. It's all he wanted to do, all he ever did. He it was the first one in the last one. I never seen a guy work so hard. His, his wife, some, I, yeah. his wife would his make recipes. him a, yeah, like, his, his wife would make him little like lunches. Like it was like amazing. I Very love that like, you brought up his name. This it's incredible amazing. like dedication. And the biggest smile. When he got out of there and started teaching, he was like, you know, he, he enjoyed his life and he loved teaching students and he just loved it. And I, I tell you, that was like, it doesn't happen often, but that's how I learned how to make souffles. And then now I'm like known as the souffle guy, you know, there's no reason why other than that. And I, I just, you know, like, it was like a fell into it. I stepped in shit basically. And I was there for almost five years. And I was the first uh, American sous chef there. Chef de cuisine. I, I want. I, I'm probably skipping around, but I'm cu so curious about the the Delano job mm. in oh. Miami, like 94. mid 90s, 94. What was it like? You're, so you like seen these European kitchens, I guess at this point, Le Cirque, hot restaurants in NYC, and then you're going to Miami in the mid 90s. Yeah, 90. You know, I was at the reason why I went to Miami was one one reason. It was Ian Schrager and. 44th of Royalton. So I was at 44th of Royalton. And I opened that place in 88, 89 with Jeffrey Chartero. I was there almost 10 years, nine years. And Ian opened up Paramount. Morgan's was first. Royalton was the second. Paramount was the third. And then Delano was the fourth. And Delano was at a time when Miami was like a, a shithole. Uh, it was needles and drugs and bad it was bad no it was, it was like not what it used to be it wasn't the Fontainebleau of old and he bought a hotel I think for pennies on a dollar with um his partner Phil Pulewski and he bought this hotel it was basically a dump it was the Delano and it was an old art deco hotel it was a shell really it was it was wrecked but in Miami you have these Historic laws, you couldn't touch the floor, you couldn't touch that, even though if it was the ugliest fucking floor you've ever seen, you couldn't touch this or that. So he brought in Philippe Stark. I think he bought the hotel for two or three, it was a stupid number, two or $3 million. He brought in Philippe Stark, who was this, who did the Royalton, who basically created such an incredible wave of attention with the Royalton. And he made this hotel where you get up to the first step and it was all like drapes and mahogany and chandeliers and white, everything was white. And from the door, you could see the ocean and then trees and checkerboard. It was like 
off the chart beautiful, but very chic and simple, but like, like it was Paris, but like a Paris that no one's ever seen. And that was 1994. And myself and Ian Schrager and Brian McNally, who was then and the, my partner at that time, because um, he took over from um, Jeffrey Trotto when Jeffrey Trotto uh, had to go to jail for some embezzlement at um, Braniff Airlines. So you couldn't have a liquor license and if you're in jail. And so Ian hired, that's another story completely. I hired Brian and we went and opened that restaurant kind of reluctantly because I had to stay there for a lot longer because it was really a shit show because there was no help. There was, there was nobody, no one had any training and it was like, we had to take people from New York and it was, it was hard. Miami's still hard to Yeah, but it was the only, everything else was cyclone fence and boarded up, but then there was the Delano. And it was, I've never seen more people come. The buzz was unbelievable. The place was, there was, it was from the moment the doors opened. Insane, 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 insane. It was 1,100, 1,200 people a day. The first day we ran out of food every day. It was a disaster. Cooks didn't show up. I was on the line. We had three or four guys from New York there. They were on the line. Uh, you know, the people that were supposed to be helping as managers, they were waiting tables. We we're all just like, we were, we were in a shit. We were living upstairs. I didn't come out of that hotel. I li- went up downstairs, upstairs, down. I stayed there for almost, I don't know, three months. It was in July. It was hot, like, so like running the got kitchen. awful hot, but I didn't get outside. And it was, it was so very successful. And I think the partners were, uh, Madonna was a partner in their restaurant. Brian McNally was a partner, and I think um, Madonna's brother, Ciccioni, I forgot his name. He, I think he did a slight stint in jail. <laughs> and it was one of those things. It was, it was one of those things that was just a miraculous, perfect storm of, of style, content, need, and just the right timing, because Miami was like a barren. So it was like bringing water to the desert, and that's what the Delano was. And Ian Schrager's vision and the restaurant, Blue Door was the name of the restaurant. Um, I mean, still operating today and killing it. And, you know, the Delano, you can, all the restaurants and hotels that have opened and since that whole strip, you could have bought for pennies on the dollars. And a few people bought a few hotels, like the, but Nian should have brought the National. I think he said no to the National at like 15 million. And he should have, you know. But now you have everything there and the whole thing is just populated. But still, when you go back to the, uh, the Delano, I, I look at it and it's still timeless what it looks like. And it's still a big wow to open it and to go walk in and see that place because it was such an incredible endeavor. And that really, that boutique hotel restaurant trend went nuts. You know, from 87 to 2007 is when everything just went nuts. And, you know, then restaurants and boutique hotels was were the thing. In 87, to open a restaurant in a hotel as a chef coming out of, a, you know, Great restaurants was just absurd, you know. You didn't have a restaurant. There was no sign. It was in a lobby, and everyone told me, "Don't do it. It's crazy. There's no. It's a hotel. It's crap. You're gonna have crappy food. No one opens an hotel." And that was like, ah, "I like it. I think Ian is a visionary, and he was." And um, that was the Delano story, and it's. I, I still have scars from that time. <laughs> it, was, it was. It was great, but it's like it was. It was like actually flying a plane by the seat of your pants. No, there was no, there was no organization. No one planned for this kind of success. No one planned anything anywhere near what was going to happen. Everyone was scared to death that no one would come. And it was the exact opposite. But how you were running, you, you ran kitchens before that, right? Well, I was at that, at that point when I left, 
I was at the Royalton for a long time, right? And before I started really, you know, working, I worked at, after Le Cirque, I went right to the 21 Club and reopened the 21 Club in 1986 with Ken Uh And I stayed there for a year or two. Then I went to a short stint at Wolfgang at, oh, I can't think of the name of the restaurant, uh, on First Avenue and 64th Street for Warner Leroy, Maxwell Plums. And I opened it. He hired me. He fired the old chef. He opened it. We got a great review. And the next day he sold it and didn't tell Gail Green, who gave us a great review. She was very angry about that. Yeah, I'm sure. After that sold, I went and worked for um, Jeffrey Chaudereau in 1987 to open the Royalton. And uh, I stayed there for almost 10 years. How do you feel about reviews? About reviews? Do you pay attention to them? I did then. Uh, I don't get the self-worth I get now from them. I used to be so, I used to pin all my hopes and my self-worth and my identity on a review. And now I don't. And reviews are so less weighty now they are because they're, they're so diluted by other reviews and, and blogs and infatuation and Yelp and you, you in social media you can get like reviewed and not well in the times and do great in Michelin and vice versa I mean everybody's competing to be the first which is almost uh, it's not a healthy way to be but I think that the review process is something you have to accept because you know Broadway gets reviewed you open a new restaurant, you have a name, you're going to get reviewed. The bigger your name, the more you're going to get reviewed. The harsher the light is going to be. So it really helps you get better, I think. So I think that I don't, I worry about getting better. And if the review doesn't coincide with what you think, then either the reviewer saw something you didn't pick up or you might have missed something or he's right. Uh, it's it's rarely the reviewer being wrong. And I'm going to say that, and it's awful to say that to the chef to understand it, but like the review is not going in there to, to bash you for the most part, just because he doesn't like you or, you know, he doesn't think you're doing a great stuff. He's going to taste the food. And it's very hard if you're a reviewer to taste the food that's really good and say anything bad about the food. You might not like the place, the how you were treated and all that stuff, but... If you're a really good reviewer, I respect you. There's a lot of reviewers I really respect. And I would be reviewed so many times. It's I have a relationship with the reviews. I can call them up and thank them for that or say thank you. Even if I get a bad review, I call every every reviewer and I thank them. I say, you know what? Thank you for that uh, review. It was very kind of you. Uh, we're going to work better. We're going to work harder to, to, to fix some of the things you saw. And I thank you for telling me this stuff. This is the way you get like calm in your mind about like, okay, because if, if you can do that, you're always setting yourself up for it. There's always going to be another review. You know, there, you just, there has to be. So you have to like think of the future. You can't think of three visits. They might get it. Most of the times they do get it. You see, and that's the thing. If you're really good and what I did was like, I was be very exacting about everything, the lighting, the silver, everything, everything. And it didn't matter if we knew who it was. We usually knew when the reviewer was there. It didn't matter because you can't like treat the table next to them different than you treat them. They watch that, you know? So you just got to cook from your heart and let it go. You just got to let it go. And when the reviewer would come, I would be the most at ease. If, if you tell me Frank Booney's at 26, I'm oh, thank God. Because you want him there. Like worrying about missing him. What a cool mentality. I like is that. the worst. Yeah. When he's there, I'm like, okay, guys, let's go. And I didn't cook. Cooks cooked. I watched them. We took a couple of dishes of each. I'm like I tasted one. Okay, that's good. Let's send that one and let them cook. If you if you take that away from them, it's a it's a it's like robbing them of their experience of cooking. So you don't like okay, everybody get out of here. Get the three sous chefs. We're cooking this. You guys suck. 
You can cook for everyone else, but not for the reviewer. That is a terrible thing to do to your chefs. So once they got there, I was like, oh, calm, because all we had to do is perform. Yeah. I love that. It's amazing. What three words would you use to describe yourself in 1995? Compulsive, impulsive, unconscious, talented, four words. What about today? <laughs> Conscious, talented, simplified, honest. I like it. You had said, I still dream of a small restaurant I visited in Provence decades ago that taught me the balance of simple flavors and the art of heartfelt hospitality. Take me back to that restaurant. What did you have? There were so many because the majority of one star, one fork, one plate Michelin, star rest Michelin restaurants um, are... I mean, in Paris, it's full of them. Chez Georges, Voltaire. Uh, you know, when they're serving like veal tongue, uh, pommes frites, salade niçoise, uh, artichoke, vinaigrette. Uh, but also Alsatian food that's really simple. And I think that for me, it's like, it's like the family has cooked for generations. And they're just cooking what they know but they do it every day and they perform every day and it's always at the highest level. And it's really hard to do that. And if you can do that and you can create an environment where people come back to you over and over and over and over again, you have a you have 30, 50, 75, 80, 100 year restaurant because you're really respecting the artist, artistry of it, yes, but really the tradition and the technique and people will come back for that. It's okay to do the same thing all the time. And that's really hard to explain. But like, if you cook a great pizza, you know, if you're like, you know, you know, you're in Brooklyn and you have this incredible pizza oven and you're doing these pizzas that are just like, you know, spectacular and you have a name for it, you never have to change. You just have to keep up that product awareness and how good it is and, and your, your appetite for getting the best. So the restaurants in France that I re remembered, they were like, the food was so simple, but the product was so amazing that you couldn't, you, all you had to do is get out of the way of the product. Just like this courgette, this tomato, this, these olives, this, this giganda, this, this lamb, this, it's so perfect. Like, don't fuck it up. And that was what I saw. And it, unfortunately, when you see that in France and you come back and you're 20 something, it's not good enough. It's like, it's old fashioned. We're going to do something new. We're going to da, 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 da. But what I learned from the Cirque before I went to Le Cirque, what I learned in those five or six years was foundation, technique, French cooking. So I learned every single French classical food in the book. Alan Sayek was a genius. He gave us all the recipes. He showed us how to make every single classical French. There's not anything I probably can, in the book, in the La Russe Gastronomique, there's very few things we did not cook at Le Cirque. And that was the real benefit that a lot of chefs had at Le Cirque that no other restaurants had. It was an encyclopedic introduction and, and PhD and masterclass of all of those classical uh, dishes that gave you the foundation and the confidence to both then go work for Danielle and go to the next level of that and, you know, sort of deviate and get lighter and cuisine minceur and all that, like a much lighter second generation French food. But today, guess what is in vogue now more than anything is the same dishes I cooked at Le Cirque Classical French food is like back and it's back with a, with a vengeance because it's so time-worn and elegant and delicious and satisfying that people want to do that, especially now after what's happened. So, you know, all this rage about where you want to go, where's the first restaurant you're going after the pandemic? People are going to Balthazar. 
Hmm. <laughs> you so know, funny. Do they so have true. a Dover Sole Amandine? You know, because they've had all the eatouts, they've had all the takeout sushi they could eat, possibly eat. They don't want that, right? And so they want to go get a French onion soup. They want something memorable, heartwarming, historical, uh, or, you know, that has legs, that has history to it. So that's what I learned. Those small restaurants that I, I, I saw, I, I got it, but I didn't really realize it until I got older. Like, wow, that's the kind of food I really like. That's what it's all about. I mean, that is what people want all the time. I don't care. You know, if you're young, you're eating at Barbuda, you're having that food, you know? So you can go to a French restaurant and go to La Grenouille. You can have like a romantic couple that are in their 20s. They're having their first souffle. Or you can go have the 88-year-olds. They've been married for 60 years. They're having this souffle they had for the last 40 years. That's beautiful. I mean, that's, that's what we do. Love it. It's so funny and so yeah, true. It's, it's, like, you I, know. I remember the, the first time I went to like Le Cuckoo, you know, which was new at the time. Oh, but, God. You know, tradition. And I, and I remember seeing like Leek's vinaigrette on the menu and I was uh, like, yes. In my, yes. like, the guy I was with is like, why are you so excited about that? I was like, because it's just leeks and vinaigrette, but it's delicious. You know? I mean, I, I, you know, I was, when I went in there, I, I get pangs of jealousy on occasion. Uh, that's one of the restaurants I'm like, fuck, thank. And then I was like, thank you for doing this. Thank you for showing young people how to make something chic and timeless and like energetic and, and full of life and vigor. And the chef, you know, um, is Danielle's amazing. And I, I remember running into him in Paris. And I became friends with him. Every time I go to Paris, I, you know, hey man, I was doing, hey, it was like a little guy and doing a 12 seat restaurant called Spring. And then when I heard that he was partnering up with, um, to come to New York, I was like, oh, fantastic. When I first saw him, I'm like, now you're going to like make some money for a change. He goes, yeah, I know I'm, I'm tired <laughs> of being broke uh, because even though he's full over there, he didn't make any money. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, you know, fantastic that he, you know, he partnered up with Steven. And did this incredible restaurant. And, and we, he just does the food he knows how to do. I mean, he's serving sweetbreads and duck and artichokes. And there's nothing on the menu that like, and ca, cabillot and cod. And, but it's all done with such precision. But precision and simplicity is really hard. Absolutely. Because it doesn't come easy to the American chef. It is not repetitive. Rep repetition is not our strong point. We want things quick. We want things shiny, bright, new, fresh all the time. And we, we, we disdain repetition and it's really a problem. But when you see a restaurateur do that every single day at the highest level, those cooks in that restaurant are getting an amazing, an amazing education, right? So true. Amazing. So true. So you also said this was probably pre-COVID, I, I take it. Today, I dine out all the time. First, because I love it. Secondly, because as a chef, you need to see restaurants from the dining room perspective, not just from the kitchen. You have to be vigilant about every facet of the meal. So I know it's been a crazy year, but are there any chefs, and we just started talking about Daniel and Le Cuckoo, are there any chefs or restaurants that you're really excited to go check out? Well, I, I didn't, I've been checking them out. I've been trying to go to ones that have been open and, and I've been in Florida. So a lot of them have still been open here, but Ignacio in, in New York is, is a guy I really respect because he really is, does the simple stuff. You know, he's doing, he's doing the Mexican version of the cuckoo, you know, and even though his food is simple and like minimal, it's five or six ingredients and it's old world cooking, but he's, modernized it you know he's he's done what a lot of chefs are, are trying to do with cooking but i you know 
when I, when I say, say that, I always try to go to, you know, I try to avoid, and I, it's not a good thing probably, I try to avoid like tasting menus. Uh, I love menu restaurants that just open up and they just do focus on one thing and they do it really well. I try to avoid tasting menus until the tasting menu gets old and they start doing a la carte because I, I, I don't believe in three or four hour dinners anymore. I, I, I believe in elegance at 90 minutes because as a customer, as a chef, I used to love that because that was like the defining, you know, that was your defining stripe. So like you get the captain's stripes, your four hour tour. It's not realistic in this culture anymore, especially after COVID. People want, they want delicious, accessible, fine. They want fine food, but they want it delivered in a manner they can get it and eat it and dine in 90 minutes or less because they realize their time is, is like, time is everything. It's changed people's psyche, all right? The paradigm has changed with time. You can't get back that year. So you know what you can get back? You can get back the future and you can get back now, but how you spend that time is gonna change. So I think a lot of those three, four hour meals are gonna come down to like, can I get in and out in 45 minutes or an hour and really get the same quality? And the answer is you can, you just gotta, you gotta design a restaurant like that. And I think that smart people are doing that. Okay, here's my next question for you. You've opened and you've ran kitchens, open restaurants. Have you opened the restaurant of your dreams yet? Yeah, yes, because the restaurant of your dream is what you have in front of you and you're dreaming at that time. Dreams change. You know, I've always had, I, I want to, I would tell people I want to open up a, 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 forgive my language, a fuck you restaurant, which is basically a restaurant where I cook what I want, maybe three days a week, four days a week. And I put a chalkboard out front and this is what it is. Um, much like Alice Waters did many years ago, which it was a genius menu. You know, Monday was $20, Tuesday was 30, Friday, Thursday was, and that busy days was 60, $70. And the, and the slow days it was less. So she was full all the time. It was one menu each week. And on Sunday night, she posted the, the menu for the next week. Genius. Tough as hell for the kitchen, but what a, what a wonderful way to live. So you make one thing every night, you perfect it and you just go on and on. So 52 menus is 52 learning experiences and 52 changes, really smart. So I love that attitude. And I would love to do something similar to that, but not, not more than three or four days a week. Just make it very exclusive, very expensive, and just let the cooks and chefs cook what they have. You know, and, and that's like, and everything is, it's expensive because there's no way you cannot get it anywhere. It's just like, this is, this is the best truffles, the best langoustine. We have live this, live that. It's just amazing. And that is a restaurant I think to this day still has legs and still will have legs and still will always be some, because there's always people that want to have the very best and let you take care of it. And no menu, no, no five course tasting, none of that. It's just everything's a la carte. And it is what it is. And if you don't like Tuesday's menu, you come back on Thursday or next week. It might, might be better. And you might like, if you don't like fish and we're serving fish that week, you're out of luck. Yeah, so I love it. That's sort yeah. of what I would love to do. Yeah, I, I want to get into social impact really quick as our time winds down. But I need to ask you this question because I feel like it's a good one for you. You know how like when you're at a concert and musicians are on stage and then they bring out another musician to surprise the guests, mm -hmm. you know, whoever it is. If you were to do a surprise dinner or a dinner where you could surprise your guests and bring out a chef to do a certain course, who would it be? Bring out a chef. Wow. Someone living, obviously. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could go back in time and get yeah. someone. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I think that it, it would, it would really depend on like what the, what the makeup was, but if it was up to me, I would probably bring someone, I would probably bring someone that is not that well-known. Uh, I would probably bring, bring someone like, God, that's, it's a, that's a good question. I would probably bring the second of some restaurant, someone that is very, that is the, is exactly the chef de cuisine of someone probably from Paris, probably, probably from a two or three star restaurant in Paris. Someone who is like not well-known yet, but is going to be like the next, next, next. Someone I think that's like, this guy, watch this guy. He's going to, who is this? Like, it's a surprise. And they bring him out. Like, I don't know this kid. Who is this kid? Yeah, they're going well, to eat, kid eat is, the food and be like, Holy. this kid is, this kid is going to be the next Jean Georges. And he's here tonight before he's, you're spending money at his restaurant. You have a chance to be an investor with him. So I would try to get him a, a gig as a, someone I felt was ready and get him an investor. Because I think that that's the thing we should be doing as chefs is trying to open great restaurants with talent that is, has the energy, you know, you need energy. You need 25 years of, of like bloodletting energy to be successful, to really make a name for yourself. I don't mean just make one restaurant, you know, if you want to open several restaurants and then have them legacies, you, you need 20 years of, of real success because some restaurants take three, four years to pay back the money. Some fail. You'll have, you'll have restaurants that'll fail. You have restaurants that'll succeed. You'll have restaurants that'll break even. You'll have restaurants that are like always in a mess. Uh, the best restaurateurs do that. You know, it's just, it's just the way it is. So you need that 20 year period. And a lot of chefs don't understand that. They just want to have like, I want to, I want my stars. I want to open my place and get all these ratings and then it's going to all happen. And sometimes it doesn't happen. You know, sometimes you get a great review and you're close. I like that. Okay. So all of our guests on the podcast give back in different ways. It's actually why we started the podcast to share what chefs do beyond a dish you may know them for you know, in their restaurant or on TV or whatever it may be. So I know your daughters, they have this this book, The Family That Cooks Together. It seems like food and cooking and giving back, it's important in your family. And you mentioned your involvement with City Harvest. So rather than me asking a few questions, I would love for you to just jump in. I'm very familiar with them too. And some other chefs have mentioned, Eric Repair, you know, mentioned their involvement, but I would love to you to dive in on your daughter's involvement with that, you know, as yeah, a family. Yeah, we, we bring, bring them to the center in New York and we, we've done a many food-a-thons with them. They've been on virtual shows, three or four shows during the pandemic, raising money. You know, we go on drives to mobile kitchens with them. They're very involved. They, we know we bring their friends to go help pack food. Um, it's something that we we do as, uh, as we do and we like, as we just, it's part of your daily routine is to realize how lucky you are and realize there are people that are less fortunate and need help. And it's very easy to help people. It doesn't take a lot of your time. And I remember coming, we, I think we invited six or eight of their friends in New York the last time we packed before this COVID happened. Uh, it was a Sunday. And, you know, Sunday is a day of like playing with the kids and the friends. I said, well, we're going to do this instead. Okay, so we came. You know, we had a blast. We packed about 3,000 pounds of sweet potatoes and root vegetables because City Harvest gives half of the vegetable, half of their produce, half of their giveaways, fresh produce, which is remarkable. And then, you know, we spent four hours and then we all took all the kids to brunch after and they were so, you could see how it impacted them. You didn't, you should, they were so ex happy to help, had so much more energy 
at the end of the day than at the beginning of the day. And they couldn't wait to get back. And it's just this experience of like knowing that you've done something, you've physically handled something, you've physically exerted yourself and you've had other people doing it together as a group is a really nice experience to share with your kids. So that is an indelible moment I'll, I, won't, I won't forget. And I've been involved with City Harvest like on and off for almost, almost 20 years, but as uh, chairman of the food council for I think seven years and Eric introduced me oh, to them to help me. And I said, you know, yes, 10 times right away. And uh, I mean, it's such a great, it's been around for almost 35 years. People don't understand. It's not like just now. And, but it's, you know, food waste and, and, and to marry waste with need for no dollars is amazing. And that's what we do. It's a hundred percent unfunded private company that gets food from the likes of Walmart and Costco and, and, and Whole Foods and, you know, other companies that send us food on a train that is expired, which to me is a great way to waste food because usually they take that food and throw it away by law. So that's a terrible thing that has to be replaced. So those expiration dates are really marginal at best and telling you when something isn't right. But in, in the world, in the scheme of things, it sort of paradoxically works out to our benefit because we get that food and we can give it away. They can't keep it on their shelves because if it expires, it sits there. But we can take it. They get a tax deduction. We take it and we give it away right away within 24 hours. So it's it works for both, both sides. And so last year, we were supposed to give away 60 or 70 million pounds. I think we gave away close to 100 million because of the ramp up from the pandemic. And we were like on fire in a good way and a bad way. We couldn't find people. We had to, you know, these truck drivers and frontline workers. It was just incredible what happened. So my, my way of giving back is, is really City Harvest because I have a, a big mouthpiece and we did two telethons and we raised millions of dollars and that they translate into like hundreds of thousands of meals. And so the waste is something I've always grew up at because I grew up in kitchens and the chef would would, you know, they would go through the garbage. And if you wasted food, he would make you go in the garbage and cook something from it. And it was a lesson I'll never forget. And we throw away like 20% of our food. Just, it's just, it's an, it's an unrealistic amount of food that goes to waste. I can understand 5%, maybe seven to 10%. But in this day and age with the, what we know in technology, why is that? Why is that happening? And uh, City Harvest, among a lot of other organizations, share our strength and all that stuff and, 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 and uh, Meals on Wheels and great work that all the other chefs do and all the other organizations do. Uh, we're part of that solving the food waste problem while feeding people. And, so, and, and that's, that problem is the same problem. And we've figured it out. We just have to do more of it because there's so much more food to save. And so many more people that are in need. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing that. And I appreciate how you really honed in on being aware of using your voice for that cause, for that organization. I'm sure you do plenty more to help people when requests come in. But I like how you kind of hone in on that um, cause rather than having 10 different things. And Yeah, I mean, I do as much as I can. But, you know, when, when you talk about impact, you know, you know, I always say, the bigger the, the bigger the front, the bigger the back. If you can have a big impact, have a big impact because we can we can raise millions of dollars, and I try to spend my time on on that. So we spend a lot of time with my production partners and, and 
restaurant partners and all the chefs that I wrangle on like, let's do big things because we need big money and we have big needs. So we need to do big things and everybody else along the spectrum can do their part. And that's where you can do little things. And we, we need that too, but we need, we need people up, t- up front to really be doing very big things because we have a very big hole to fill. Yeah, absolutely. I want to be mindful of time. Do you have time for a super quick speed round and then a sure. closing question? Okay, great. Speed um, round. We're gonna, yeah, I know what this, I know this, yeah. Andrew. <laughs> All right, question one. What did you have for dinner last night? What did I have for dinner last night? Um, I had, it's very funny you asked. I had Tom Colicchio's craft. I ordered this meal kit. I had stuffed porchetta with fennel and sausage. I had Tuscan kale chimichurri, and I made a bibletta salad. It came in a box and a kit, and I roasted it, and it was sublime. And I try all these chefs' kits. I'm fascinated by it and see how food travels. So that's what I had. I love it. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Vinegar. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. Um, uh, Garlic that isn't, you can smell garlic when it's like, it stinks because it's been sitting in oil or someplace warm and it like ferments. Not a, not a good smell. What pisses you off in the kitchen? A lack of, what pisses me off in which? In a professional or a home kitchen? Professional. Bad lighting. What makes you happy in the kitchen? Good lighting. What actor is playing Chef Jeffrey Zakarian in a movie? What actor is playing Jeffrey Zakarian in a movie? Probably Richard Gere could do a pretty good job. He's a very, you know, he has gray hair and whatever the hell. I'll go with Richard Gere. I know him. He's a good guy. I like it. All right, let's do a closing question. You have me real hungry after going through a lot of this food talk and traditional classic dishes and techniques and so, cuisines. I'm like so into classical food now. It's like, I go back and look at my notes. I'm like, fuck, why haven't I done that? Why haven't I done this? Why? I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring this back. You know, it's, it's I'm going to bring back cartoons. <laughs> yeah. Here's my final question. Your podcast is called Four Courses. Yes. Tell me your dream four course meal. Hmm. You know, I, 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 you know, I tell people all the day, all day long, what's your final meal? What's this meal? And I was like, that's so like depressing to think of that is like that. But but probably champagne with each course and maybe some really good burgundies. Uh, definitely caviar. Definitely like turbo. Very little red meat. But if I had red meat, it would probably be, you know, duck or game. Nice smelly game. And then white truffles. Uh, all those things that are very sort of special that come and go with the seasons. Uh, I would I would sort of wrap that around. And for finish, you know, I grew up and I started in pastries and I think pastries, the, the simpler, the better. But if I could have Didi Shona make me his um, Four Seasons chocolate cake or have a real uh, creme brulee like I used to make it, uh, or he used to make, uh, something simple like that and a great, a couple of, a really good Cuban cigar. Mm, I love it. Yeah, thank you. I think Sounds I good, have, right? I think I still have that creme brulee recipe on a note card. I may uh, I have to make it. that soon. Andrew, you know the problem with that creme brulee recipe? You can't find the sugar we used to use to glaze. There's a certain brown sugar that they don't make anymore. So we had to take brown sugar now and dry it first. There's a little something for you. We used to use this brown sugar that was granulated. It's hard to find. You know, I remember him saying it was like a sifted brown sugar, yep, and I yep. would yeah. Because what how. happened with brown sugar, if you if you if you put the flame too close, we'd put it under a broiler. It was like a, one of those steak broilers you see at the steakhouses that come down. It was like thousand degrees, and you gotta be very fast. If you, if 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 you didn't do it quick enough, where the sugar wasn't dry, it would have these black dots in it, so it would burn it because there was too much water in the sugar. It was very hard. 
And he showed me millions of times how to do it. You have to sift it in the hand and sift it and dry it and sift it and dry it. And then, you know, you have to take it out and put your finger around it and rim it. And it would just, just get the right glaze. And then once you did it, you couldn't put it back into the refrigerator because it would bleed. So you had to do like a tray at a time, let it sit out. So it would be chilled, but the top would be crispy. There would be a slight chill to the, to the creme brulee. And the top would be that, that whack, you know, it was... It, you had to be, if you put it in the fridge after that, it would bleed and melt. And it was hard. It was and really- You had to walk down the line behind everyone. Yes, yeah. yes. So it was always like, I'm sorry, I need creme brulee. And they're like, fuck, there's 10 ducks and people would scream at you. And like, we had one grill, you know? And so that would be, that was why it was, when it was good, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like a creme brulee. When it's, re, when it's really done amazing, you're like, wow. And basically we sold them, I think for like, $11 back then, it would cost 22 cents to make. Well, Chef, thank you again for being so generous with your time. I appreciate it. I appreciate all you do for City Harvest. I love seeing how you're, you and your wife parent the girls and, and what they're up to and talking about these classic dishes. As I said, I, if I don't go and get a French onion soup within the next oh. week or... It's hard to a get a good one. Try to find a good one. I mean, it's really hard. I know. I was talking, you know, it's funny. I had one. I celebrated my birthday recently and Rachel, I work with Rachel Ray and she called me. She said, what are you doing for your birthday? And I was like, honestly, we're going to a steakhouse. I'm not a big steak guy, but I want French onion soup. Yeah. And she's like, I respect that. I was like, but the problem is it needs to be good because there's too many variables and some people half-ass it and they fuck it up. You know, yeah, I was it's like- basically cheese. Yeah, exactly. And it's cheese. It's not very good cheese. And it's with wet onions. The onions aren't caramelized enough. The sherry is too much sherry. The bread is wrong. It's too thick. It's not hot. It's not hot enough. The, the depth of the broth isn't right. It needs to yeah. be a deep broth first. And then you don't sweat the onions enough. You rush them. You end up burning them. It's just this, you know, I say simple plus 30 years. You need to learn how to make that thing right. And it takes time. Like anything takes time. Yeah. This was awesome, man. I appreciate all these stories, lessons. There's some <laughs> we have, awesome a, lot. We have a lot more to talk about, but I'm sure. Thank I'm you sure. for having me, Andrew. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank talking you, to you, man. Good, yeah, good luck with everything. And, and I'm su the you podcast well. is super exciting. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank Thanks you. for having me on. Man. Have a good day. Cheers. You too. Thanks again to Chef Jeffrey Zakarian. Find more on him at jeffreyzakarian.com. To learn more about City Harvest, go to cityharvest.org. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yetton, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media is by Sarah McClellan Me. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, presented by Ford's Gin. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.